Lowy's in the rosebud unit that he owns with a packed bag, wondering if the police are going to raid him. Lowe finally makes an admission to Margaret Hobbs. He suggests that he drive to Red Hill with her because she's got a car, in case it somehow jogs his memory. Welcome back. This is Andrew Rule, and this is part of a series on the abduction and death of Cherie Beasley. If you've missed the story so far, you know what to do. Go back to your podcasts and listen to the early episodes. It's 12 weeks since Cherie Beasley, six-year-old girl, has been snatched from a quiet street in Rosebud, Victoria. No one has seen any clue of what happened to Cherie. The only clue is that it was a man in a blue Toyota Corolla hatchback that took her. The police suspect that the abductor is Robert Arthur Selby Lowe. They have no other suspects and they are following Lowe. Meanwhile, of course, they're very anxious to find any sign of Cherie's body because it is hard, not impossible, but hard to prove a crime if you haven't got a body. So far, in 12 weeks, all the searches have produced nothing. But on the morning of the 24th of September in that year, so it's now spring, the full season has turned, there are three teenage girls at Red Hill, which is a pretty country district a few kilometres away from Rosebud. These girls have been working at a local stables for a trainer, a horse trainer, and they've been working with horses, grooming them, feeding them, and so on. And they decide that uh, they finish work for the morning and they're going to go riding their hack ponies. And they've got two ponies between them. They're riding from one property to another to pick up the third pony. So one girl is on one pony and the other two are double dinking on the other. And along the way, they go near a driveway on a nearby property, a property called Wathunga, which is about halfway on their journey between the two properties. And this driveway, of course, comes off the road into the property and it has to go over a culvert, over a, a big pipe, which has gravel laid over the top so you can drive over it and the pipe allows water to come down the gutter beside the road and continue on its way. And horses are very alert to things that are different or wrong or that smell or look different. And as the girls are riding along, one horse spooks. The horse stops and arches its neck and pricks its ears, and it's obviously worried about something to do with the culvert that where the pipe is. The girls are a little bit interested in what the horse is spooked about. So they look down at the concrete pipe that runs underneath and they can see something. It looks like what they think is a kangaroo carcass. There are a lot of kangaroos, that time of year particularly, get run over on country roads and they thought they could see some skin and muscle and bone and things, but it's all sort of been washed pale by the elements and uh, there's a bit of a smell there and this is what has upset the horses. So they look at this and they ride on past. They assume it's a kangaroo, but something about it worries them, or worries at least one of them, because they can't quite put it out of their head later in the day. So later on, after they've been up and fetched the third pony, and now they've all got a pony each, they're riding back the same way. They couldn't resist having another look 
at this alleged kangaroo body in the end of the pipe as they go past. And this time they jump off their horses and get a bit closer. And one of the girls, Joanne Reardon, reaches out and prods the bones and the skin of one leg that's sticking out of the pipe with her whip. She's got a riding whip. And she wrinkles her nose at the smell. Another girl, Kelly, does the same thing with her foot. She gives it a bit of a poke with her foot. They were looking for a tail or a head to show that it was, in fact, a kangaroo, but they couldn't actually see a tail or a head. The two younger girls were fairly satisfied it was a kangaroo, but the older girl, a girl called Angela, is a little bit preoccupied. She's not so sure it's a kangaroo. And when they go back that afternoon to the racing stables where they're doing some work, she mentions it to the boss there, who's a horse trainer, and she says, I wonder if that smell down at the culvert could be Sheree Beasley, that little girl they're looking for. And the horse trainer laughs it off, shrugs it off, and says, oh, right, you know, we'll have a look later or something like that. Angela doesn't pursue the subject with her boss at that moment, but it still worries her. There's something about it's not quite right. Next day, 25th of September, Joanne's big sister, Kim, who's also a bit of a budding horsewoman, she and her friend Tara set off from their place and ride towards the main road. And when they reach the intersection, they turn their horses onto the bridle track going beside the road. And as they approach the same spot where the other girls, younger girls, had seen or smelt this body, Kim's horse stops and stares to the right side of the puddle that's lying there. She kicks the horse to get her past, but the horse refuses and spins around and tries to go back where she'd come from, which is something horses do if they're spooked. So Kim pulls the horse around and forces her closer to the puddle. Tara's horse is a little more tractable, but it also refuses to walk past the spot. It's then that the smell hits them. The wind must have shifted a bit and the smell hits them directly. It smells, of course, like a dead animal. And then they look around and they see what looks like a pile of rubbish. Kim gets off her horse, walks over onto the driveway over the top of the pipe, and then they realise that the horses have calmed down a bit, so they get back on the horses and they ride off. The horses are fine for the rest of the way, no problem. Two days later, Angela and Kelly happen to pass the drain again. On the way, they notice that the bones that they'd noticed the first time had been pulled out of the pipe into the open, and they're now more than two metres away from the pipe. They're more exposed. And it looks to them as if foxes or dogs have got at these bones. Now, they ride past at some stage and see that, and then later they ride back. So, they, you know, they keep seeing it. And the second time, they're at close quarters, and this time Angela, who's always been worried about it, is almost sure. She said, it's a body, she says to Kelly. And she said she knew because of the angle of the calf muscle and the toes. She said you could tell that it looked like a human body as much as she didn't want it to be. Her friend Kelly agrees that it doesn't really look like a kangaroo and they have a bit more of a look and then they go home. They decide to wait until their grown-up cousin, Donna, turns up. Now, Donna is older and Donna is a nurse, so they trust that Donna will know what she's looking for. And when Donna turns up, they go and see her. And Angela says, Donna, there's a body down the road. Can you come and have a look? So they borrow a torch, and by this time it's dark, and they go back to the spot with the torch. Donna, the nurse, is there, and she has a look with the torch, and she says, it is. It's a body. 
They all knew what she meant. The mystery of the body was solved. And of course, that was the start of a new phase of the investigation. The police come, the lights are set up, the forensics turn up. And when the detectives get there, and I, I know two of these detectives, when they get there, they see the culvert and the pipe and they realise the pipe is only really not terribly big. It wouldn't have been 30 centimetres across. And one detective says, God, she must have been prodded and pushed up there, must have had her bones broken to get the body in there. It's just such a tight fit. Uh, it, was, it was quite horrifying to them to think that not only this child had died a terrible death at the hands of a monster, but she's been disposed of basically like a piece of rubbish, and that really affects them. It, it affects them, particularly one of them, I think quite badly. So now it's a full-on homicide investigation. Before this, it's been a missing child. Now, full-blown homicide crew starts work. There's a, a little postscript to the finding of the body. The pink helmet never turned up. The police never found it. But they eventually found someone who'd seen one like it. By this stage, it's November. The police are still following Robert Lowe around Melbourne and wherever he goes. They're still listening in to Margaret Hobbs's office to see what he says. They're still trying to find anybody who knows much about Lowe to see if they can get any clues. And they're very interested in getting any evidence that will connect Lowe with this murder. But they don't find the missing pink helmet, but they do find a little girl called Rebecca Sword. Now, Rebecca was a nine-year-old girl in fourth grade at the Red Hill School, up near where the body's found. She's a bit vague about dates, but she's definite about what she's seen. She said, a few weeks earlier, while waiting at the school's back gate to be picked up by her mother, she saw a pink bike helmet lying in a bunch of trees and plants. The helmet was lying sideways in a type of nest, on the right side of the back entrance driveway between the school fence and the road. She said, I told my sister Laura and I showed her the pink helmet and after a while I thought it could be Shree Beasley's helmet and that we should not touch it because the police are looking for fingerprints. Smart nine-year-old. Rebecca noticed that the black strap on the helmet had a tattered end and was crinkly and that the other end of the strap had a buckle of some sort. And she noticed that there were pine needles lying in this helmet, so it had obviously been lying around there for some time. When their mother arrived to pick the two girls up, one of them told their mother about the helmet, but their mother didn't say anything. Next day, when they got back to school, they noticed that the pink helmet was gone. And what no one knows is, is whether someone picked it up to take it home to use it again or whether, you know, there'd been some clean-up and somebody picked it up and thrown it in a bin, or whether Robert Arthur Selby Lowe had managed to slip his followers and come back, and um, which is probably unlikely. By this stage, the police have been able to reconstruct what had happened on the day of the abduction. They've found all the witnesses who have eventually come forward, who have been able to construct what happened in what order, and they've found the witnesses that pulled up when they saw the bike lying on the road that first day. And here's the amazing thing. When these people pulled up because they saw the bike lying in the road the first day, the very minute. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? 
I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. That Sheree has gone missing. One of these witnesses, he later tells the police, he said, you know, when we pulled up and moved that bike, the back wheel was still spinning. They missed seeing the abduction by seconds, maybe 20 seconds, maybe 30, but one of the wheels was still spinning on that bike. So that blue car must have just driven around the corner as these people got there, which is one of those extraordinary sliding doors moments. Had they come a little earlier, they would have seen it happen. They probably would have realised it was an abduction, followed the man and stopped what happened next. It's just a terrible, fateful thing that that a few seconds is the difference between life and death. And I think it is the sort of thing that haunts the relatives of Sheree Beasley and indeed any other murder victim, that such a tiny thing that life and death rests on a, on a chance thing like that. I think it probably haunts some of the investigators because they start to live the case and they realise that had it just gone a little bit differently, if this, if that, any tiny difference would have altered the outcome. Because really, Robert Arthur Selby Lowe acted on some sort of impulse, but, you know, it could so easily have been different had somebody just driven around the corner. However, there is a school of thought that Lowe had spent a fair bit of time in Rosebud because he had a unit there or a holiday unit, and that because he was hanging around at Rosebud sometimes, he would have seen this little girl on a pink bike riding around up and down a particular spot, going to the shops, and maybe like a fox waiting for a chicken that he'd waited around, bided his chance, which is especially chilling. And it shows why parents are paranoid about children, because if they're loose uh, long enough, maybe a bad person sees them. The odds are long, but it can happen. It does happen. And in the case of Shree Beasley, it did happen. By now it's November, late in the year. Margaret Hobbs is pretty well haunted by this terrible thing. She's got a tiger by the tail. She realises that she is the conduit for the only real suspect for Sheree Beasley. Everything she hears from Robert Arthur Selby Lowe persuades her that he did it and that he's deliberately taunting her with half-clues, sort of statements that could be taken either way, but she thinks it's deliberate. Lowe is looking more scruffy with every session that he spends with her. He's not shaving. He's got the greying hair and beard that's growing longer and looking rougher and making him look more like a Darrow and less like the smooth salesman that he was. He's got a whole sheaf of dog-eared notes where he's been constructing what she thinks is his sort of storyline, basically his alibi. And he's put together a complex series of movements to show that he was back in Melbourne and not at Rosebud at the time of the abduction and so on and so forth. All of it lies, all of it devious. Initially, of course, he tells her that he's never been to Red Hill, which is unlikely given that it's fairly close to Rosebud and that anybody that goes to the peninsula to holiday would probably drive back into the countryside and see Red Hill. But as Red Hill figures in the conversations with the news that the body's been found there, he drops a few things into the conversation with Margaret. And he says, if it's the spot I think it is, Lorraine and I might have been there once, 
but I don't think I got out of the car, and I certainly didn't see any drain. Margaret Hobbs can now see the signs, and she senses another half-baked admission. So where's the spot you think it is, Robert, she says, casually, just trying to draw him in. She's very good at this because she's spent, you know, many years, first as a probation officer, and then secondly as a psychotherapist, talking to offenders and getting to the truth of what their behaviour is and the truth of their motives and motivations. So she's used to their, their lies. Margaret had a Melway Street directory in the office, as most people did in those pre-Google days, and she handed it over to Robert Lowe. He leafed through it with the ease of the professional traveller, which he had been, travelling salesman, and he turned to the double page showing the Mornington Peninsula. He knew exactly where it was. About here, he said, and he put a pen over one spot on the map. He just held the pen above the spot on the map. Where, said Hobbs, Margaret Hobbs, and she took the book and she shifted it up just slightly so that it hit the nib of the pen and it left a mark on the page exactly where Cherie's body had been found. Apart from one visit from Lowe's very successful brothers in New Zealand. Now, the Lowe brothers in New Zealand were very successful business people. One of them owned a multi-million dollar avatar business and the other one was also in business and they had ocean-going yachts and all that sort of stuff. And when they visited Australia in November of 1991 to see their troubled brother, the brother that's been giving them trouble most of their adult lives, Robert Lowe, who has looked like a Darrow for some weeks, turns up all haircut, clean-shaven, spotless white shirt, tie, sports jacket, looking the complete part so that he wouldn't let down his brothers. But they all talk to Margaret Hobbs about his current problems and they go back to New Zealand first class on their jet airliners and leave Robert to do the best he can. And within a matter of days, he slips back into his derelict ways. And by this stage... He's got no money. He's diving into dumpsters for food. He's just living a very low life. So the police are following him around, watching him degenerate further and further. But so far, they haven't got enough to charge him with. And although he might have looked terrible, Lowe hasn't lost his cunning. He's intelligent. He has been through the courts before, so he understands the system. He understands alibis. He understands evidence. He understands witnesses, and what he's been trying to do this whole time is build a false alibi by working out a chain of events that he claims to have done on that day, the day that Cherie went missing. And he's claiming that he came back hours earlier than he did and that he went to a cricket game or whatever it was, and basketball game or something, and he's trying to create doubt in people's mind and say, oh, you saw me there, didn't you? getting people who are a little bit vague about what's happened so many weeks in the past and so many months in the past that he's trying to create false witnesses who fall into and agree with his fake memories. All this time, Lowe has been re-offending, even after he knew that the police were looking for an offender in a blue hatchback car. He used that car before he lost it and when he lost his job to drive around and to re-offend, which just shows you that that streak of exhibitionism was so powerful that he couldn't stop himself from doing it, from flaunting his deviant behaviour in a way that would be calculated to get him caught eventually. The pursuit 
of Robert Lowe was a war of attrition. December the 19th, 1991, many, many months after Sharia's disappeared, Robert Lowe telephones the head of the homicide crew that's investigating called Paul Hollywood, and he makes an appointment to see Paul Hollywood and uh, other detectives. He actually says to Margaret Hobbs, I'm, I'm quite enjoying the drama of all this. He's getting a, a twisted pleasure from this sparring with the police. He doesn't find it quite so pleasurable in the seven hours he spends with the police. Apart from anything else, they put him in an ID parade with some of the witnesses. And at one point, he loses his cool with the police when they laugh at his extremely elaborate alibi statement in which he claims to have come back from Rosebud several hours earlier than he actually did and that he'd gone to this game and that game and all the rest of it. And they said, that's nonsense, that's a pack of lies and, you know, your wife and sons won't agree with that, etc. He loses his cool, but in the end... um, He's allowed to leave. He takes... They haven't got enough to arrest him with. They give him the videotape of the interview. He heads off and he gives the videotape to Margaret Hobbs, who watches the whole lot, quite fascinated with the way that her client and the man who is now haunting her dreams handles himself with the police, which is mostly as a sort of a mild-mannered monster. By Christmas Day, Lowe is in the rosebud unit that he owns with a packed bag wondering if the police are going to raid him, planning to run out the back door of the police raid and jump over the back fence and disappear. Not that he could go far. They don't raid him. In January 1992, of the new year, Margaret Hobbs gets a phone call from interstate. It's Michael Chamberlain, as in Pastor Michael Chamberlain, husband of Lindy Chamberlain, father of Azaria. And he tells her that he's been contacted by her client, Robert Lowe, and he says to her, I wish he wouldn't contact me. A lot of people in trouble contact me and I I try to help, but there's something about this I don't like. He doesn't sound genuine. And, of course, Margaret Hobbs has to be very careful what she says, but she doesn't disabuse him of his negative view of Robert Lowe. 6th of April, so this is now 10 months since Cherie disappeared, Lowe finally makes an admission to Margaret Hobbs and he says to her that he did pick up the little girl in his car and that he drove her around here and there around Rosebud and at some point she started to cough and splutter and he was worried that she would somehow choke or something and that, you know, she died of choking and that he panicked and been forced to get rid of her body because he didn't really want to be found in her company with a dead child because people would leap to the wrong conclusion and think that he had had something to do with it. She nods, absolutely struck dumb by this admission, and then he suggests that he drive to Red Hill with her because she's got a car in case it somehow jogs his memory, is the way he puts it. She's fairly gobsmacked by this. Next door, the police are listening to every word. Detectives Andy Guski and Alex Barch are listening to every word, and they think we've got him now. And you could excuse them for thinking that, but the reality was it would be another year before they actually had him. On next week's episode... 
As usual, he's crowing about how much cleverer he is than the police. He draws himself to his full height and he says, there'll be no deals, there'll be no stupid games, we're not here to play games. Either you want to help catch a child killer or you don't. Access a world of true crime podcasts on Crimex Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.